Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What have you done? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield, and we'll see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, my debit here with Ken Erdy, fresh from his trip to Dortmund. Ken, you witnessed Borussia Dortmund taking Arsenal apart time and time again, and good occasion. Yeah, um, really, really impressive performance by. Dortmund, considering that most of their team was injured or unavailable for one reason or another. I mean, you've got Royce, Hummels, uh, Kagwa was not fit enough to start, um, Pishek, Blaszczykowski, um, Shaheen. It was actually more than half a team's worth of players that they had out. Arsenal had to play Bellerine at right back, but other than that, they were all pretty much frontline senior Arsenal players. They got absolutely destroyed. I mean, it only was 2-0, but really it should have been. 6-0 would not have would have been quite a fair reflection of what happened in the game. It was incredible. Mm. And, you know, it was what I thought maybe it's un- unfair to draw real sweeping conclusions based on one game like that. I mean, it's, it's not really one game. It's kind of the culmination of a long process, actually, I think. But this whole thing with Wilshire, I just thought Wilshire, his, his uh, week, the whole... He's, he had quite a weird week, you know, um, from this England performance where he's playing as a holding player through the, the following days when there was loads of stuff in the media about why is Jack Wilshere playing the holding midfielder? Because it's like a holding midfielder in in English um, media parlance appears to be the player in the team that doesn't have any ability, whose job it is to give the ball with players who have actual ability. It just, it just seems like it, no one has ever managed to kind of step beyond that. I mean, you've got Xabi Alonso, you know, you've got um, uh, Andrea Pirlo being dominant players in um, international football, in European football. And no one has ever, it seems in England, it's still sort of, no, that, that guy I'm is just sure a kicker. I'm not sure if you would class Pirlo as a holding midfielder. And in terms of where he stands on the field, I take your point yeah. in that he launches attacks from deep. But yeah. he's not the guy who's going to screen in front of the fence. But then you've Mikel Arteta playing for, I don't know how he looked live, but on TV he looked like a total disaster, supposedly protecting his defence. Mm. Kevin Gilban said on TV3 afterwards, 
I've played with this guy. A good player, a very good player for us, but he was really most naturally a number 10 type player. Yeah. And if you had to drop him back a bit further, so be it. But the guy is not going to win you these sort of games as a in any way a holding midfielder. No, well, I mean, it's it's a kind of a... It's the idea, It's like the whole idea of a holding midfielder being like a, you know, a destructive player rather than a creative one. You know, rather than a guy who initiates a lot of the play for his team or who's able to kind of stitch together moves from the back of midfield. I mean, there was an amazing quote from Guardiola during the week, something along the lines of, you can't have uh, a proper uh, switch between defence and attack without a sequence of 15 passes in between. It's like, <laughs> what? You know, this is, that was, uh, I mean, it's an extreme view. And it's, some would say, kind of a, almost a nutty view. But he's saying, this is so important. I mean, the, the whole... Um, the process of moving the ball around. I mean, you can see it by Munich from the very first um, minute, for first second against Manchester City. They brought it back to their uh, defence, um, pinged it around just between the defenders and sort of midfielders in their own half for thirty seconds, and then suddenly, like lightning, uh, it's through to Muller in the in the box. Muller is running through. You know, um, I mean, well, obviously, that not every team can necessarily aspire to having a game that's sophisticated, but. For Guardiola, say that play at the back is essential to uh, creating the situation where you can suddenly attack and cut cut through the opponent. Now, obviously, not everybody plays that way. Klopp, uh, the Dortmund manager, has a completely different way of playing the game. We can talk a bit more about that because he talked about it the other night. But Wilshere, it seems to me, has got what it would take to play in that position because he can pass the ball. He's he he can. He can keep the ball away from players who tackle him. He has the ability to turn away. To, he's strong enough to hold off players, I think. Um, he's a good possession player. But he's got no pace. And it was so painfully apparent against Dortmund. Now, it's going to be more painfully apparent against that team than against a lot of teams because they they're, they're, they're all about speed. But it looked as though Wilshere, he can't, he can't play at this level. Mm. If he wants to be a number 10... You know, he's wearing number 10 on his back. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. But, if, but you know, he was playing as a as an attacking midfielder. I mean, one of the reasons Arteta maybe was so swamped was that it was essentially him alone against this Dortmund midfielder, which was quite tight around him. And he was just he was just outnumbered. He couldn't really... You know, Ramsey and Wilshire were ahead of him. They couldn't get in the game. But Wilshire is just not fast enough to really... The, you, you could see the contrast with Mkhitaryan, the Dortmund number 10, who can do everything. So he can ba- he can do all the things that Wilshire can do, but he can also run and use both feet, which means that he's got two more dimensions effectively than than Wilshire has at the moment. And if Wilshire wants to try and do what Mkhitaryan's doing, he's not going to be able to do it. It strikes me that Arsenal are in a funny position then, in that Wenger's he's a great coach, but he's in a position now where he has to try to make a lot of players do things they can't do. The Danny Welbeck does not look like he's going to score a lot of goals for them and they could do with him doing that. Yeah. You can't teach a guy of Jack Wilcher's age to get much faster. There's some explosive training you can do, sure. Yeah. Arteta is not going to become... Well, he could do, but you would think at this stage of his career he's not going to become much better defensively, uh, which doesn't augur too well for us. And we'll get into all that. There are lots of Champions League reaction on the show and we're going to explore the relationship between football and oligarchy. That's the one you've all been waiting for. Are you a Chelsea fan? Do you care how Roman Abramovich gained as well? Should you care? All of that. Gabriela Mercotti and Jonathan Wilson 
We'll chat to us time now, though, for your report on sport, Gary. So, I mean, you know, this sounds like I'm you know, having a big go at Wizard. What I'm saying is that I, I think he's trying to be the wrong kind of player. I don't think he has got the equipment to be this number 10 that he wants to be. He, he maybe could have been 30 or 40 years ago. He could have been. But the game is too fast now. It's changed so much in the last few years. I mean, literally in the last, you know, since since Wilshire started playing football when he was a kid, in that time, it's changed. And when you're up, you know, Wilshire, you know, I mean, people I'm sure will be listening to this going, well, hang on a second, you know, what about the, the other day against Manchester City? Did Wilshire not play really well? And yeah, he did. But I don't think that, you know, in the, I don't think that uh, if the, if the standard is a player like, Mkhitaryan, Wilshire has no chance of getting near that standard. Does Wilshire have a chance of being like Xabi Alonso? Yeah, I think he does. I think he could if he, with, with a process of learning, with a real effort on his part to understand what it is that a player in that position does, to understand the game in a deep way. Um, I think he's got what he, you know, Xabi Alonso can't run either. He's one of the most hopelessly unathletic men in, in sport. You know, I felt so sorry for him the other day, the other night, watching him against Bayern. He, Bayern had this real, okay, we're going to click, we're going to get right in their faces, going to close them down. And poor old Xabi Alonso running around. <laughs> oh, God, I can already see his face turning red, you know, in the first 10 minutes. But no one would say that Xabi Alonso has not been a world-class uh, player. I mean, I think, he, you know, if he, had tr- if he had tried to be a number 10, he, he wouldn't have made it. That... Is the same as the story, the career story of Andrea Pirlo. Pirlo thought he, that he was a. I like to play behind the strikers. You know, everybody wants to play behind the strikers. It's the coolest position. <laughs> it's just a, you, yeah, yeah. You don't quite have the pr- pressure of having to score all the goals. No, you don't really have to defend. You just get to go around and be really skilled. Don't have to defend. Don't have to. Don't have to score in every game. Um, but you get to. You get to ha- take some shots. You get to shoot from outside the box. You get to try little dribbles. You get to play. Sexy through balls. <laughs> you know, everyone wants to play behind the strikers, but not everybody necessarily can. And someone like, the way that the game is now, if you want to be in that, if you want to play in that position and be dangerous, um, you're looking at, who, who are the players who are doing it now? I mean, Sterling is, is a good example in English football. And the thing that you notice about him that strikes you immediately is his speed is mm. unreal. Um, Mkhitaryan, incredible speed. I mean, I don't know if he's quite got Sterling sprint speed, but on the ball... I mean, I mean, there's no difference between him with the ball and without. Royce, the, the, the other Dortmund player, um, these are all players who have the ability to go past uh, to go past defenders. If you build a team in a certain way, would there not be room for a player without burning pace to play number 10? If, if, he did, if Arsenal make decide, look, it's all about Wiltshire, actually. Mm. Forget these other guys. Wiltshire is a guy. I've got to make him my number 10. I've got to find ways to compensate for the fact that he's not... An absolute flyer. Maybe uh, there there is, and I mean, I'm sure you know Wilshire could could play in that position for a smaller club, but not a club that has aspirations of winning the Champions League. I don't think. Whereas I think he he is. There is a really talented player in that in that guy, um, but I just don't think in the role that he's playing. Anyway, you know, we we could rabbit yeah. on about this all day. Um, my uh, views on Jack Wilshire, um, but you know the Dortmund. Dortmund performance was amazing. 24 shots to four it was. And Klopp was talking about it afterwards, saying, well, look, it's just, I mean, it's, he was saying, you know, we, I think the question was along the lines of, were you surprised at how bad Arsenal were? You know, were you surprised that they couldn't defend? And he said, well, it's very difficult to defend. You know, if we win the ball, um, 
30 or 40 meters from Arsenal's goal, that means we can put a striker in on goal with one pass. Can't defend against that. You know, it's, it's the exact opposite, I suppose, of Guardiola's idea of, well, you know, first of all, we need 15 passes just to, to get everything set up and then we'll make our move. He's saying one pass and they, they can't defend. I mean, in, in one way, Arsenal were unlucky. I mean, the goal that was scored um, uh, by Mobile was a little bit lucky by him. Klopp tried to say it was a deliberate shimmy past Koscielny, but the way the ball bounced off his shin was a bit lucky. Um, the second goal, Chesney made a big mistake, but Chesney also made some good saves, so I don't, you wouldn't want to be too harsh on him. But, you know, um, it was a really thorough thrashing, and I wondered if someone said to me afterwards, uh, one of the German journalists said, I think the stadium won the match in the first 20 minutes. And I thought, well, he has a reasonable point here. There was... Um, I mean, the stadium at Dortmund is obviously very famous around Europe. It was my first time being at a, at a match there. And uh, beforehand, Germans were saying, it's a pity you're coming here for a Champions League game. And I, I said, why? I thought this would be a big game. And they said, yeah, no, it's a big game. But it's, you know, it's 17,000 fewer people here than there are at a league game because UEFA puts in all these seats on the on the Südtribüne where all the fans are. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like in a Bundesliga game given what it was like at that Champions League game on in its diluted version, which was to say, pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, in the first minute of the game, there was a moment when a ball came across the field into the area in front of Gibbs, Arsenal's left-back, and he kind of stepped towards the ball and then literally chickened out of going for the ball. You know, everyone could see... It's, it's harder sometimes to judge for a player, am I going to get that? Everyone could see Gibbs, you're going to get that, but he backed off. And that was that sort of jitteriness about Arsenal right from the beginning. They made so many mistakes, such a bad start in the game, that I think their confidence really drained from that point on. And Dortmund thought, yeah, we're going to win this. Because they none of them beforehand thought they were going to win. Everyone thought, well, it's the same as they were talking about Schalke. You know, how, how many goals are Schalke going to let against Chelsea tomorrow? You know, they've got an 18 and a 19-year-old in central defence. It's going to be 5-0, maybe 6-0. It ends up 1-1. You know, mm-hmm. so I think the um, Germans are um, maybe overestimating the current state <laughs> of English football to some extent. What about Chelsea? You mentioned them there. Well, Chelsea, uh, Diego Costa's hamstring, not as magic as we thought uh, the other day because he did end up having to actually sit out a game. Um, I, I did wonder uh, whether this is... Mourinho's saying, look, well, look, the group isn't that difficult. Sporting Lisbon, notwithstanding Nani's amazing goal last night for Lisbon, they couldn't even beat Maribor. Chelsea are going to top this group. I think Mourinho thinks this is the time to introduce some, some of my guys, Didier, Drogba, Felipe Luis, and so on. Um, I don't need Diego Costa. I can give him the time off. And in fairness, you can't, if a player has got actual hamstring problems, even if he is showing impressive fortitude and recovery speed you don't want to push your luck um, so resting him fair enough but in the in the event then Chelsea didn't win um, and that was largely due to the fact that Julian Draxler a player Arsene Wenger has long been um, fascinated by was absolutely fantastic I mean the did you, did you see the part that he played in the setting up the goal for Huntelaar amazing reminded me of Gareth Bale you know the the way in which he exploded past Ramirez and Chelsea. Like, Ramirez is a difficult player to get past, you know? I mean, he, Ramirez did pull out a little bit because he, you know, he didn't want to get booked or maybe he was on a booking, I'm, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, he kind of pulled back a little bit. But there was no chance of him stopping Draxler other than by illegal means. Um, 
this guy is only 20 years old. Yeah. You know, to, to it's like like one of those Welsh physical freaks, George North, Gareth Bale. That's what that's what Draxler reminded me of. So, you know, they were all talking later on about whether, you know, how long he's going to be at Schalke, which is the unfortunate reality for, for old Schalke. They always end up losing their best players. Um but yeah, a player who, who on that showing was is going to be is going to be a big player over the next few years. Um, but of course, this uh, this was just on the heels of a of a um, an online controversy, not an online controversy, just a controversy in the commentariat um, between uh, Matthew Syed and uh, well, I don't want to say it was a controversy. But Gabriel Marcotti, who we'll talk to in a few minutes, um, had kind of written a counter. Uh, point piece. Now this is a piece in the Times a couple of days ago about Abramovich and Syed had just got a little bit annoyed. Syed, if you remember, is like the guy is the guy who turned up on Sky Sports News last year to talk about Robin Abramovich's 10, 10 year anniversary as Chelsea manager and flanked by I think Tony Cascarino who said, Oh, it's been great for Chelsea, great for the club. Syed started laying down all these uh truths. So he started speaking some truth in the Sky Sports studio about, well, hang on a second, why are we celebrating this? You know, this is terrible. Um, this man, um, you know, became rich thanks to chicanery in Russia. He, you know, the billions that he has at his disposal uh, are taken effectively from the people of Russia. Um, this is reprehensible. You know, we should be pointing this out at every opportunity. And indeed, he pointed it out again on Tuesday. Yep. Um, just a couple of... Uh, couple of lines from that. Uh, every now and again, it's worth reminding us ourselves of the wider context. Paul Gregory and Forbes, this is Syed's piece now, from the Times. Paul Gregory and Forbes magazine wrote at the time of the berezovsky Abramovich trial that the corruption was worse than even jaded observers suspected. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev described Abramovich as a symbol of Russia's rich debauchery. Uh, meanwhile, in football's fantasy land, Abramovich is the bloke with the charming beard and fit wife. The rehabilitation of Abramovich is, in many ways, one of the most sordid episodes in recent sporting history. He's indulged by the great and good, flattered at social functions, and genuflected to below, by those within the game. His carefully sanitized image as a sporting benefactor brooks no opposition, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's, uh, that's his point of view. I mean, I have to admit, when I read this, I was thinking, hang on a second, why, why is this... Why are we talking about this as something that's football's fault, or is it is is a kind of an indictment of football's morality specifically? Well, what I felt when I first read it was, as you say, I remembered the. I think we brought that up a few weeks ago on the show that appearance on Sky Sports News, just because it was so striking, you weren't expecting the brand should be discussed in that way. In that on that platform, neither were the Sky Sports News presenters or Tony Cascarino. I don't think, for that matter, but. There was nothing necessarily in the article. I'd have to reread it. That I don't, and I don't think Matthew said it was trying to present it all as new material, in the sense that the actual the actual facts have been there from a court case, and that as you said, that uh, court case from a couple of years ago. So it's tr- I, I did note that there was a strong reaction to it, and I was just wondering why it had created this controversy when actually it was uh, opinions previously stated and facts previously stated. Do you think that the, the biggest issue is that Syed was trying to tie this into a rottenness to football? And take as opposed to seeing it. It's a general rottenness. It's a reflection of. I mean, it's a it's a club in a city which has got more billionaires than any other city in Europe. Um, not too many of them English. Uh, that the UK government has for a very long time encouraged these people to come and essentially buy up 
quarters of London uh, and live there on the basis that somehow their wealth, I guess the basis is that somehow this wealth trickles down in some way. Trickle, trickle down. It's good. Um, it's certainly good for the sort of billionaire uh, service industry. I don't know whether it's good for most of the people in London that this the city is increasingly becoming a sort of haven of the super rich. But the point I felt was, sure, Abramovich is is, is faded within football, uh, you know, and you, you almost really never hear references to the fact that, well, this man, the way that he became rich. I mean, just to, to remind ourselves of the way he went rich inside, goes into it in the piece, um, stuff that came uh, became, it, it was possible to talk about it without fear of any legal uh, retribution after Abramovich and his former business partner Berezovsky were involved in a, a, a court case in 2012, which Abramovich won um, against uh, Berezovsky. Berezovsky was claiming that he had been swindled out of, uh, you know, uh, big shares in companies that they had previously owned together and that Abramovich had threatened him and used various illegal means. Now, the court found in Abramovich's favour, Berezovsky uh, has since uh, took his own life. Um, but, uh, I mean, the, the the broad outline of how Abramovich became so wealthy is, you know, is, is pretty well known and quite simple. Essentially, he obtained uh, controlling interest in this company, Sibneft, huge oil company in Russia. This is uh, as part of his alliance with Berezovsky. They managed to, um, and side goes into it in peace, you know, by various cur- means which were described in the court as corrupt, obtained control of this oil company. Then the way that he ran the company was, obviously an oil company makes quite a lot of money. What did he do with that money? He paid it to himself in the form of a dividend. That's not really what a, resp- a responsible owner, even of an oil company, does. Most companies will uh, will say, okay, we've made, let's say we've made a billion dollars this year. Okay, well, you know, Decent it's the same year. thing. We want to we keep working next year and into the future, so let's take some of that billion dollars and reinvest it into our company, maybe, you know, upkeep of plant, and, you know, do we want to expand our operations and, you know, keep this business ticking over. That's not the way Abramovich read it. it. It was almost as though he knew he wouldn't be in. Uh, he wouldn't be owning that oil company forever. It was almost as though he wanted to take as much money out of that oil company as possible in the time that he owned it, in order to have that money whenever he didn't own it. That was the way that he ran yeah. that company. So he paid himself these gigantic dividends. You know, most of the profits of the company every year, which is how he became so uh, fabulously wealthy. Now, of course. How did that oil company get there in the first place? It was built by the Soviet state. I mean, every all of the um, uh, the plant, all of the pipeline, all of the rigs, all every piece of infrastructure that that oil company consisted of had been built by the Soviet state in the name of the Russian people. Um, it was national wealth. It was it was wealth that belonged to the nation, which ended up belonging to Roman Abramovich, mm. um, which meant that the people there didn't didn't have it. And I suppose that created uh, certain funding issues with the government. I mean, you can see you can see the the problem. That's the moral issue. Why has this guy suddenly managed to swindle all this money for his own benefit? Money which should have benefited the whole country, you know, money which is otherwise going to be spent on all the things that the country needs. You could you could make an argument. Well, the money just would have been squandered in other ways, or some other corrupt guy, some other some other corruption would have happened to to ensure that the people didn't get the money that you know their forebears had had worked. 
you know, to build, to pull out from under the ice. I get the sense a lot of the Chelsea fans aren't even going that far in terms of analysing their own judgment of it. They they just simply point to other owners of Premier League clubs, other people within football, and are badgering Syed about why he's picking on Chelsea specifically. But we'll get into all that anyway with uh, Gabriel. As you say, Gabriel McCarty, it's always interesting. Uh, when you write a piece about a piece that your colleague has written. So, as you say, in the commentariat, there's a bit of disagreement. So we'll talk to Gabriele about that, and we'll also have uh, Jonathan Wills. Uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has parted company with Cardiff City after less than nine months in the job. Uh, So, I mean, three losses in seven games in the Championship was how they started the season. It always did seem like a strange move by... And it turns out it wasn't a smart move. Mm. Um, this is a guy who had, who enjoys vast popularity at Manchester United, where he, you know, played with distinction for so many years, so many faithful, patient years uh, by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Went away to ha- having done a coaching stint at United, went to Malda, and the idea was he was going to build his career quite slowly, learn the ropes. You know, won the title I think twice with Malda. Um, did really well there, and then bizarrely took this job at Cardiff City. Why? Why would you take? I mean, it's it's. I mean, uh, you can see you can see why. Okay, he gets to the Premier League. There's an owner who seems to have some money and so on. But at the same time, um, it was crazy for him to go to such an unstable club, a club which in which the owner uh, had been forget forget about all the stuff with Malky Mackay. I mean, remember the time when when Solskjaer took it over. Uh, it was, oh, look, at the, after the way they treated old Malky Mackay, after all he'd done for the club. And we know more about that situation now. But leaving aside what had happened to the previous manager, the mere fact that the, the fans and the owner were at such loggerheads over so many different issues, Solskjaer should have known, this is, this is a, do I really need this job? I'm not a good Solskjaer. I've got a huge reputation. It's only a matter of time before a more stable club offers itself up. It's human nature to a certain extent, I guess. You get a big offer like that and I'm sure it's well paid and all the rest and uh, it's a good career opportunity. You mm. might, I don't know, you might think that, that you just have to take it or you, there's a feeling that you almost maybe obliged to take it but it hasn't worked out. Do you want one more story uh, here? Rio Ferdinand? Oh, uh, just more more from Rio's book. It says Wayne Rooney used to smash up a lot of mobile phones. Sorry? Yeah. Apparently Rooney... Uh, seemed to fly into a rage about the smallest thing. He went through mobile phones like they were sweets. He would you know, he would smash phones up in frustration, throwing them on the concrete. Other players used to laugh about it. <laughs> that's a bit uh, Princess Rooney, like, you know, what, throwing mobile phones around? That's nuts. Does it, do people seriously do that? Even really rich people? Come on. I don't know. Um... I hope, but apparently he's mellowed now. He's he's not like that anymore. That's the end of Ken Erdies. Report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck <laughs> happened? No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young... Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded the world outside of that. That's why sport's important.
Gabriele Mercotti joins us. Gabriele, we're just on Chelsea, first of all, in their performance last night. There may have been injuries, but they were also seemingly resting players for a Champions League tie. Does it show that Mourinho's priority is the league, or just that he thinks that they've got an easy group and will get through regardless? I think it's a combination of, um, of, of two things. I mean, one, the dropping of Diego Costa, we're, we're certainly told. Uh, and again, I'm not a doctor. The information clubs leak is always, uh, or clubs share, but a guy's condition is always, you know, it's always a bit sketchy. But it's been suggested that uh, Diego Costa right now needs time in between games uh, because of his hamstring. I think that had a lot to do with him. And I think there's a stark reality that I think psychologically being able to inflict damage on City at this stage, the benefits of that. Um, you know, outweigh the champions, uh, the, the Champions League, simply because you've got six games. Uh, even if you drop points, you got a chance to get back into it. And finally, the other thing is, look, Schalke aren't going, aren't doing well in the Bundesliga at all. They had, by my count, nine players injured or unavailable. So you know, you got the big squad. Why not use it? You, you had enough out there to beat Schalke. Was it maybe a bit of a surprise that it was Remy and or Drogba rather, and not Remy? who, okay, while he, while he hasn't got a body of work to compare to Didier Drogba, uh, he is at least in the prime years of his career. I would have thought he was the second-choice striker at Chelsea. Um, yeah, you, you would think that. But then again, you know, we're not with them every day on, on the training pitch. Um, I can only suspect uh, that uh, maybe, you know, he felt that uh, it, it would be the kind of game that Chelsea would, would just spend on, on the front foot most of the time with Schalke defending, and, and so maybe you know a bigger, more powerful striker uh, would work better. It could also be, and you know, some people have speculated upon this, that uh, he just wanted to give Drogba a run out so that Drogba would be conscious about you know what level he is at really, and that you know if Drogba could play in this game, see that he struggled, and you know maybe now might be more willing to accept a, a role as, a, as an impact sub. The game, I suppose, was, was uh, well, the goal for Chelsea was scored by a great link-up between Hazard and Fabregas. I want to talk about these two guys. Was, Mourinho was talking about Hazard um, the day before the game, um, and he was saying, you know, oh, Hazard, he can't be compared to the, to the guy who was here, um, you know, when I arrived. Now he's got technical education, he's got tactical education, uh, and so on and so forth. So kind of boasting about how he's improved Hazard. I wonder if you think he, he really has. He hasn't always improved this type of player in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, uh, to some degree, this is, <laughs> this is Mourinho. You know, he's, um, you know he, he's been saying stuff like this throughout his career. You know, guys become amazing when he's with them and before they're substandard. I mean, I, obviously Hazard has grown because he's older and, and, and he's matured a bit. You know, uh, and obviously Mourinho has been good, good to him. But you know, he was pretty darn good before that. He's a two-time Player of the Year in France, and you know, I, I think he is one of those guys who, who could ascend, you know, to that that, that next level, the one where you are a global superstar, um, you know, just a notch or two beneath the likes of uh, of Messi and, and Ronaldo. Fabregas, Gabriele, was excellent again. Uh, was this an oversight by Arsene Wenger? I'm not sure if he's the type of player who would have made a huge difference in, in Dortmund the other night. Maybe they needed... Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe he could have done a better job than a few of the guys out there. But every time you see him, you wonder, why Why was it that Arsenal didn't take the punt and take him back? 
Well, I think there's a couple of reasons to that. I, first and foremost, um, I, I, I don't know how great Fabregas' uh, appetite to return to Arsenal really was. If he really wanted to make the deal happen, I think he could have made it happen. Um, secondly, I think it's also a question of resource allocation. You know, you've got Jack Wilshere, who you've locked down in a long-term contract. You've got Aaron Ramsey. You've got Mesut Ozil. Um, you know, are you going to go add somebody else and then you got to maybe, you know, not play one of the other guys or, or, or ditch them for, for less than they're worth? I think all of that came into the reckoning as well. Um, maybe the, the mention of resource allocation brings us nicely onto our next point, which is that when I was reading um, the reactions to the game last night in the media, one thing I didn't read was anybody pointing out that uh, Roman Abramovich was sitting in the stand watching this with a, a self-satisfied grin. And why wouldn't he be self-satisfied, uh, given the corrupt way in which he amassed his uh, gigantic fortune? And why uh, are we in football prepared to put up with this nonsense? Your colleague in the Times, Matthew Syed, had a piece about this the other day, suggesting that the game has a, a clear moral problem, a moral blind spot when it comes to Abramovich and, and his ilk. You disagree? I mean, I think... I, 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 I obviously take take Matthew's point. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think he's right that the fact that there are other people who who may have, um, you know, similar questionable origins to their fortunes is not a reason to excuse him of it. But I also think there's two things here. One is the guy's been in this country for, for 11 years. You know, I, I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you don't notice, if you hadn't noticed 11 years ago, and I think a lot of people had noticed 11 years ago. A lot of people know the origins um, of his wealth. Um, then I don't really see the point of, of being outraged today in, in, in 2014, and especially and being outraged that the media don't bang on about it on a daily basis. Um, you know, I think the, the, the people are now, are now kind of used to it. You know, the, this is a fact. The other broader point is that it's not, and, and this is what, what prompted me to write a response to, to, to Matthew's piece, is he, he kind of, I think, slightly patronizes football fans by, and, and football in general by saying, like, oh, you know, you fools, you think you're different, uh, you know, you think you're different from the real world, and you can look away when people do such egregious things. Well, no, the, the real world, uh, at least in, in, in England uh, or in Britain, looks away uh, all the time when it comes to rich people wanting to move here and wanting to invest here and wanting to do business here. Um, you know, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a policy of, and, and, and that's been the case with the government that they have now, which is conservative, and, and the government they had before, which, which was labor. Um, you know, they, they look at this and, and they figure that it's in the country's interests to have these people here because they spend a lot of money here. Now, we can debate whether it's the right policy or not. I think what's not debatable is that, you know, the UK is a, is a democracy and that um, these people are democratically elected. And if the voters don't like this policy that they have, and it's obviously not just Abramovich, then, then they can vote these guys out or put pressure on them and, and maybe make different rules, maybe have a, a morals clause about you know, what kind of people you welcome into this country, what kind of people you do business with. Within the realm of football, is it not fair enough to, even if it's not a new information, I take the point that people, if they want to know all this 
uh, will already know it. But yeah, people maybe don't pay a huge amount of attention all the time, and sometimes you learn things and you forget things. It might be no harm reminding yeah, football fans. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, what I'm saying is reminding. I think Matthew Side's piece was sort of prompted by. I, I almost, I think I, it registered with me as well. Just on the TV broadcast of the Chelsea game, you know, there's this image of Abramovich doing, the, the, you know, the way he claps. There's a vuncular uncle <laughs> yeah. character. Yeah. And, and I, I'm, I think the commentator said something, oh, you know, look at him there, a picture of delight. And it just sort of sticks in the crawl a little bit. Maybe it's not a bad thing to have it pointed out every so often because people have a tendency to just think of this as being normal when actually it's really weird. This is a Russian billionaire um, paying vast sums of money to footballers all over the club. Chelsea Football Club are recent champions of Europe. This is very strange. Well, it, there are two things, well, three things, actually. First and foremost, if he has a problem with it, then, you know, I think maybe in the interest of balance, he could have... Uh, uh, spoken to the BBC commentator and, and asked him, why do you feel the need to point this out? Aren't you concerned or troubled by this, that, and that? Um, because, you know, you're really taking issue with what a Match of the Day showed. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, he comes out well, but the whole country celebrates Abramovich. I, I don't see the whole country celebrating Abramovich. I don't see people in the media. And again, maybe I'm reading different media from the one he reads, but I don't see people jump, you know, saying like, oh, isn't Abramovich a wonderful person and hasn't he been a boon to, to football? I think people just kind of accept him um, as, 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 as for what he is. Uh, and, and then I think, you know, the same applies to, to other, uh, uh, to other club owners. And, and as I made the point in, in my rebuttal to him, to, to other businesses as well, you know, the, 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 we make decisions that, um, that they're, are a lot of people with, with ill-begotten gains, and, uh, and you and I can uh, discuss this on Twitter. Uh, you know, you could argue that uh, you know the, the, the whole, the whole the, given the British Empire that they, and, and the colonialism coming from from throughout Europe to the rest of the world, um, much of the rest, you know, much of our wealth today in Western Europe was originally ill-begotten, um, and yet we don't go back and, and, and dwell on it uh, continuously. Um, and, and and if anything, if anything, I mean, we tend to celebrate our achievements in, in Western Europe maybe a little bit too much when you consider uh, how we got rich in, in in the first place. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, that's the part that that, that struck me. Yeah, I, it, 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 it is it is goofy, and, and and there are those there are those questions there. But you know, by, by the same token. You know, you can level that accusation at a lot of people. The, the man who owns um, Tottenham Hotspur uh, is British, was educated in this country, got the benefits of um, of, of, of taxpayer-subsidized education and healthcare and roads and all this other stuff that, that people get here. Um, but now he lives in the Caribbean, um, so he doesn't have to pay taxes here. You know, in some ways, you know, that's... that's I think that's as reprehensible, and, and people don't people people don't go on about him, um, you know. So I I think that that's just what struck me as, as a bit as a bit dissonant there. You could though, I mean, go all the way back to Cain and Abel and say, well, what he did was pretty bad. So really, which it know, was who of us can who of us can talk? You know, I mean, when you know, we 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 all I, go back uh, that far. I mean, what what I would wonder though is this this idea of uh, you know the cost benefit analysis that you refer to the idea that somebody like Abramovich in particular, I mean, I, I think that maybe people should, you know, whatever happened between Cain and Abel, 
um, you know, the British Empire and India and all, all these kind of things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't judge anything that's happening in the here and now because bad things have happened in the past. I mean, the, the thing with Abramovich is you, you wonder how exactly is it that he's done more good than bad? I mean, if you take football as a whole, his impact on it has been transfer inflation, uh, wage inflation, Chelsea winning a lot of stuff, which has been great for Chelsea, but I don't, I don't know that it necessarily is for everybody else. All right, but there you get into something else. Because if you're going to say Abramovich is bad because of the wage inflation and, uh, and, and transfer inflation and so on, which I, which I don't think is, is, is what Matthew's saying, um, then we have to ask the question, you know, are very wealthy people coming into the game bad for the game? Um, you know, if Warren Buffett had bought Chelsea back in 2003, and I mentioned him as somebody who I don't think anybody has ever questioned his moral character or how he got rich, but uh, if moral, if, if Buffett, who's pretty much lily white relative to Abramovich, uh, if he'd bought Chelsea and spent exactly the same amounts of money on it that Abramovich had uh, had spent, would you would you would you have a problem with it? So is it the fact that he's rich and has spent billions, well, he, or is it, or, or is it the origins of his fortune? You could say it would still be bad in the same way, but it wouldn't be bad in both of the ways that Abramovich is bad. Okay, then if you're going to argue that it's bad in the same way that people with a lot of money invest a lot of money in in in, in, in football, um, then you know I think what you're talking about is is a fundamental shift in the way in the way we see the game. Then you're talking about um, a situation where uh, we'd be better off if owners didn't pump money into Premier League clubs uh, at all levels, uh, or if there was some kind of limit on on growth and and spending. And what you would probably end up with is is, is a Premier League that wouldn't be what it is today, because of course there's a tremendous amount of trickle down um, that, that that happens. Um, you know, the, you, you can say it's, it's wage inflation, but, you know, this last year in Europe, you know, club revenues increased faster than, uh, uh, than wages. Um, the, 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 the bigger clubs or many of the bigger clubs like Arsenal, like Spurs, uh, like Manchester United are, are, are profitable. Um, Manchester City claim they're going to be profitable very soon as well. Uh, so, I, I don't quite know. Uh, when, when you throw in the amount of, of, of people who, who benefit um, financially from this, from, from the way the economy has grown um, around football uh, in, 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 in the media and in, in, in stadium building and, and, and whatnot, then, um, you know, I think it's kind of hard to argue that we'd be better off if, if football were still run on, on a shoestring. Uh, Ken, just, yeah. Ken just wants to go back, Gabriele, to the more simple days when... Tom Finney had to do a bit of plumbing around Preston to I'm just sick that make my, ends meet. My dream of living in a, a mansion in Belgravia has been just <laughs> snatched from, it's now beyond my grasp thanks to Abramovich and people like him. Gabriele, listen, brilliant chat. Thanks very much. <laughs> my pleasure, boys. It's funny, this whole idea of a, a sport having to somehow behave in a more uh, on a higher moral plane than society does mm. is something that's come up in the all these cases in the NFL and how they've dealt with the domestic violence that's plaguing their league at the moment it seems uh, I've heard arguments made that the NFL have, uh, it's been a total disaster for them 
but that the, they're actually being asked to do more than society does in general. That America has an issue with this full stop, and the courts maybe this the courts may not be processing as many cases as it should do. And mm. uh, yet, the sporting organization is the one being held up as the as the, the having to be the leaders in this case. I don't know whether that's fair or unfair that. Uh, Sports Association should have to do that. I don't think you can expect moral leadership from sporting um, administrative bodies, you know? Why should the FA be any more progressive or moralistic in its uh, in its outlook than the government, you know, the, the actual British government? Mm. You know, if it's, if it's fine for George Osborne, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, to visit um, a Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, on his yacht... Um, if he, he's actually wangling an invite on board this guy's yacht, so presumably he can he can develop some kind of relationship with it with a rich and influential person. You know, why, why should why should the FA or <clears throat> the Premier League or whoever say, well, hang on a second, you know, we're not sure about this. These guys have a patchy human rights record. You know, this guy Bremich, we're not quite sure. You know, when we when we look at it, should this guy really have that, all that money? It doesn't really add up. You know, wh- why should they take the lead? I mean, you can see what the people in actual positions of power, the people who are, are effectively setting the tone for the rest of society. You can see the standards that they have. And so I don't, I don't think you can expect football to, to have higher standards. And that's the, that, that for me would be the problem with the side piece in that it almost makes it sound as though this is a problem specific to football. You know, oh, this, um, this degenerate game, this sick game without morals, you know? When in fact you're talking about something which is the, the, whole, the whole country. It's just reflecting what's what's happening in a wider society. We've got our All Ireland final preview show already ready for you to listen to Ushin McConville and Anthony Moyles in great form, and that one. U.S. Murphy even weighed in on uh, Kerry and Tony Gall with a prediction. So, if you have time today, have a listen to that at some stage. Jonathan Wilson joins us now to talk about Man City first of all, Jonathan, and their uh, I guess their lack of a real performance against Bayern Munich. According to the RT pundits, they were casual in terms of how they play, went about their business. Do you recognise this with regards to Man City? Can they be sometimes casual with their talent? I think that is true. I think it's it's particularly true of, of Yaya Toure. That I, I'm not sure whether he is casual. I just think that games that aren't going well, he, he sort of gives an impression of being casual. Now, yeah, only he knows whether whether that actually is a casualness or whether it's just sort of the way it looks. Um but I think, yeah, I think this is sort of a, a, even beyond last night. I think this is a sort of general problem for City that you know they, they seem you know, obviously very good in the Premier League. Won two of the last three titles. They they're perfectly fine in, or they're perfectly fine in Champions League last year in terms of sort of dismissing the mid-ranking teams. But every time they come up against a, a Bayern or, or a Dortmund or a, or a Barcelona, you're the real elite. They they seem not quite able to to make that step up. Now I, I guess the problem last night was that. You know, one of the reasons they signed Fernando in the summer was so they could play three men in the middle of midfield and maybe try and close down that area. And Fernando being injured meant they couldn't do that. Um, but you know, you, you can't you, you know you, you can't always be relying on one player. And, and you know, we, we're yet to see whether he can do that. Torre is such an interesting case. Jamie Jackson focused his piece in the Guardian on Torre and his stats in the Champions League for Man City aren't bad. He scored five goals in eighteen games. But three of those were in the 2011-2012 campaign, so only two since then, um, which for by a player of his standard probably isn't a great return and maybe he's not creating enough. Is Torre maybe a microcosm of City's issue in Europe because he is so dominant in the Premier League? And there's no reason, I don't know if you think there is a reason, Jonathan, why 
there, there should be any difference to how a player of Torre's stature performs in a Champions League match compared to a Premier League match. I think the problem with Toure when you when you're using stats is that his role can be so different from game to game because he he, he can play either as a holding player or he can play you know, effectively behind a, a front man or he can sort of play somewhere in between the two. So I mean, you know, without going back to every game, my suspicion would be the reason that his his goal stats have, have dipped over the last couple of years in the Champions League is that he has been playing a more uh, more restrained role. He has been playing deeper, and obviously, you know, again, that's why they brought in Fernando so he can play Fernando and Fernandinho in front of the back four. And then he can drop in when necessary, but he can also make those surges forward. And I think that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I'd be I'd be reluctant to, to damn him on that stat alone without sort of further analysis of it. And I, I do think that Fernando signing is is key to how City are looking to address their problems uh, in Europe. And, and, and yeah, you know, this result isn't disastrous for them. They probably still go through the group. Uh, I, I guess there's now an issue. How do they do at home against Bayern if Fernando's fit? How are those plans sort of working out? And then, you know, it's the last 16 where they'll really be tested. Okay, I'm, I'm about to say something which maybe you might, you might consider to be stupid, but I wonder if maybe Manchester City might actually be... Usually I, I, would, I, would, I would disagree with someone who made this point, but maybe Manchester City actually should be looking at trying to bring in some British players. Because at the moment what they have is Joe Hart, who looks as though he could be on the way out of there. James Milner, who's flitting around the periphery of the squad. Scott Sinclair, who I didn't actually even realise was still there. And Richard Wright, who I thought had retired. So, you know, I mean, if you look at the teams that have been quite uh, successful, the English teams that have been successful in Europe, certainly Manchester United, uh, Chelsea, um, Liverpool to an extent, have all really, have, have all had senior players in the team who are from uh, Britain, maybe who understood the the importance of the club they were playing for, maybe it was the kind of the bedrock of the. Certainly, you get this point made about Chelsea, where John Terry and Frank Lampard, whatever their Frank Lampard, who's obviously at Manchester City now, <laughs> um, but you know, whatever whatever you think of them as as characters, they did seem to bring a lot to a, a bit of steel to the team, a sense of a sense of permanence, a sense of we're not just here for the money. You know, signing a player like Fernando, a good player though he may be, will it really change Manchester City's essential lack of interest in being Manchester City? Well, I, I take that point, but I, I guess the issue is less one of nationality than, than one of having a core who, who believe in the values of the club. And I think that's it, it, a club like City, who have made a huge leap in status with, with a you know, huge injection of cash over the last three or four years, I, I guess that is something that's difficult to attain. And maybe Chelsea were fortunate that when they had their huge injection of cash, they already had Lampard and Terry at the club. They already had two players who, who would form that core. Now, I, I think I think City, when you talk to Fernando Soriano, I think he, he is sort of aware of that side of things. And, you know, this, this statement that they were, they were mocked for when, when Mancini was, uh, was sacked and they said they wanted a more holistic approach, I, I, I guess that's part of the same idea, that they want all parts of the club pulling together uh, they want a coherent philosophy throughout the club, but that also means actually having a core of players who can can help spread that. And I, I yeah, Yaya probably stands stands out in in, in probably here and he and Van uh, Company are, are the two who who can begin to form that core. I think the fact they're not British, okay, maybe British players will be more likely to stay there for longer. But I, I think the nationality issue is is less significant than just having players who are. Uh, are, are Actually, emotionally and visibly committed to the club. Mm. I mean, you don't you don't think it's significant that you know, pretty when you look at the teams who win the Champions League, most of them do have quite a lot of players from their home country. I mean, the exception is obviously Inter in 2010, 
when I think Materazzi was the only Italian who ended up on the on the field at any point in the final. Um, but that team did break up almost immediately as soon as Mourinho uh, left. That that generally these clubs are based around a, a core of players from the home country because they're ultimately less likely to leave the club. Well, there may be some truth in that, but I, I, I think that's just a fact about the Premier League and the fact about English football. I mean, I think there's, there's only 17 or 18 English players are even registered for the Champions League this season, as opposed to 80-odd from Spain. So there's, there's only one more Englishman registered to play in the Champions League this season than, than Belarusian. So, I mean, that's a general problem with English football and with the, with the Premier League. Uh, I, I guess maybe it does feed this idea that teams don't have a core, but, but I, I think that's more of a fact to do with just the nature of you know, what the Premier League is. The fact that it is this international league that happens to be based in England rather than necessarily um, you know, uh, a problem that each English club has. We've been talking uh, about Matthew Syed's piece. I don't know if you read it this week, Jonathan, about mm-hmm. uh, Roman Abramovich. Uh, we were talking to Gabriele Mercati about this a few minutes ago. Uh, I, I suppose Man City are a different case in the sense that their owners are legitimate royalty. They're, they're still the... Um, I mean, there's still extreme examples of how wealth changes <laughs> dynamics within a within a football club. Well, if, as long as the legitimate royalty, I'm sure they got their money in a perfectly yeah. legal way. That's how royalty works, in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the question. I mean, do do you watch football? Do you take into account the kind of point of view that Matthew Syed puts forward? Do you feel at all uneasy about watching teams like Manchester City and Chelsea achieve in the way, by the means with which they've achieved? Yeah, I, I do, um, and I, I would love for to be a world in which you got teams like you know, the Celtic team of the sixties or the Ajax team of the seventies, where there there's a core of local players who come through. I think football would be maybe the standard would be slightly lower, but but it would just be a a better thing because it would mean that you know, I don't know a team from Sweden or Denmark or somewhere could suddenly get this generation of great players and, and an inspired coach, and they they could challenge. And that's you know that's. I know there's a slightly different issue because the, you know, the issue you're, you're, you're bringing me to is uh, does it matter where the money comes from? Yeah. And yes, it does. And yet, it's I, I think it's very very difficult to to draw up hard and fast rules. Um, I mean, the, the sad truth of money is that all wealth is in some way gained immorally. It's it's very hard to think of examples of people who've who've gained their wealth. Being you know, people with the wealth to own a football club. Uh, Gabriel Marcotti suggested Warren Buffett. Well, he well he, he I don't know about that. He, he may <laughs> all be right. Uh, but even then, yeah, you know, how has somebody like Warren Buffett been been put in a position to to have that amount of money? It's to do with where he grew up. Did that country gain its position of authority and power and wealth legitimately? You know, there's an infinite regress here that that you know makes making judgments very very difficult. And I, I guess you end up. Uh, I mean, this was this is similar to the issue of if you're when you're hosting a tournament, do you should you look at the the nature of the government of that of, of a country hosting a tournament? Do you look at that human rights record? Uh, and I was talking to people before the World Cup in Brazil, uh, talking, talking to people from, from Amnesty about this, and obviously there's a lot of concerns about Qatar and also about Russia, and they were saying, well, actually, our, their concern, uh, Amnesty International's concern, was at that moment about Brazil and saying, well, what we say is not boycott these countries, but actually use the tournament as a way of, of shining a light on, on problems there. And obviously did a, a lot of work in highlighting abuses with, within the Brazilian police and, and uh, the way that there'd been clearances of the favelas and things. So, so they see, see it as an opportunity. And I guess it's the same thing with, with ownership of clubs, that if a, somebody like Abramovich 
uh, takes over club or, or the sovereign wealth funds take, take over clubs, what that means is that those people, um, they, they, they're scrutinized more. And so you get pieces like Matthew Saeed's piece saying, well, hang on, look at Abramovich. He's not this cuddly oligarch, if that's, if that's an expression, it probably isn't. But you know, that, that, um, it means that we, we do look at him and look at where his, his wealth came from. And so, although he, as I am pretty sure, he, the, the net result has been a gain in terms of his reputation. It's made him more secure within Russia. It's made him, uh, as he intended, I think, uh, it's, it's harder for Putin to, to take him out in the way that he, say, took out Khodorkovsky. Um, but also, you know, we, we now have have pieces like that that, that that show where his wealth came from, and that raises a level of unease. And there isn't that element of scrutiny, which perhaps otherwise wouldn't be there. Well, I mean, Matthew Side certainly got lots of uh, responses from Chelsea fans and, and you know, he, he was drawing attention to some of the more unpleasant ones and obviously people get angry, um, you know, when when their morality is called into question um, and and he was suggesting there was this was cognitive dissonance, this is why they were so angry. But I wonder, do you think it is a morally problematic position? I mean, we spoke to one of these Chelsea fans a, a few weeks ago, David Deal, who... Uh, and we asked him some questions along these lines, and he was kind of saying, he, "What are you talking about? Why, why, why are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm, I go to watch Chelsea. Uh, you know, this is this is great. We're winning trophies. He, you know, he he certainly didn't seem bothered by this uh, by the fact that this was uh, maybe funded on some ill-gotten gains. But I wonder, is you know, do you, do you consider that to be a morally problematic position, or is 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 it in fact is there not a a view which says, well, look, the game is the game." It doesn't really matter who's paying who. I mean, you can, you can still go to a Chelsea game. Cesc Fabregas and Diego Costa are going to play amazing football. It doesn't invalidate what they're doing. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't change the fact that these are great footballers playing great football and this is worth watching simply because the... Uh, I mean, do you always have to take account of the, of the economic and political kind of su- support structure of what you're seeing on the field? Does that maybe blind you a little bit to what's happening in the field or reduce the value of, of the actual sporting spectacle? Well, I think both are true. And I think most people probably, I mean, there's obviously tribal issues that, that you know, Chelsea fans, are, the vast majority will stick up for Bramwich, understandably. Um, and I think you saw that uh, when Paolo Di Canio was made manager of Sunderland. There were a lot of Sunderland fans who were very uncomfortable about that and, and about you know, his supposed fascist beliefs. And there were a lot of Sunderland fans who went, well, we don't care. We just want to go on a Saturday and watch someone play. We, if we're winning, that's great. If we're losing, we'll get rid of him. And I, I think you know, the sort of um, you, uh, yeah. Obviously, me as a Sunderland fan, I, I kind of went through that process with the Canio, and I, I sort of had a frustration that the media were going after low-hanging fruit. I still didn't really know what the Canio thought. I'd like to see a clear explanation for which I, I guess Sunderland's media department is partly responsible. They didn't let the Canio answer that. Um, but actually, what are you meant to do? Are you meant to meant to say, well, I want someone to lose so he gets sacked? Or do you say, well, actually, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that, but I still want the team to win, which I think is a position that the majority of people took. Or, you, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book at the minute on, on Argentina, Argentinian football, and you look at 78, and the, the, the World Cup victory in 78 is, is hideously compromised. The, the fact that it was this great success for... A regime that I think, you know, I don't think evil is too strong a word for Fidel's re- regime, and it, it it kept them in power for maybe three or four years longer than they, they would have been in power for. But but you know, does that mean that ordinary Argentinian people who are suffering in that government shouldn't celebrate that? I mean, it's um, I, I think it's very very difficult. And I think you do have to separate that in your mind. All right, Jonathan, we leave it there. Listen, thanks a million. Cheers, thanks very much. The flame here. The flame. 
flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. That's a good point regarding Argentina at 78. It's interesting Jonathan brought that up and that he's writing about at the moment because we talked to Marcela Mora Yoraco, if you remember this, the Guardian journalist who's from Buenos Aires, from Argentina anyway, um, about that tournament. And she told us a story. I think one of the, it was a political prisoner had been on the night of the World Cup final was released, well I say released, was brought out by her captors from wherever she was being kept. Uh, this isn't Marcella herself, Marcella's recounting the story of a, of a political prisoner here uh, who was brought out driven around the streets, part of the celebrations, her and the guards who were keeping her captive all going crazy for this football result and then back to captivity and back to wherever that political dissident mm. ended up. So, you know, and even Marcella herself said that, sure, people were uneasy about the fact that the this might legit, this triumph might legitimise the regime there. But at the same time, there, a lot of them had a pretty bad life at that time. So to get a little bit of joy for a short amount of time was welcome as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I mean, so so Kempes was the the great player in the Argentinian team and lit up the final with this <clears throat> brilliant display. And so does the fact that his he was winning a trophy for, um, as Jonathan said, an evil regime or doing them a a very good turn by scoring two goals in the final against Holland does somehow invalidate the greatness of his performance on an athletic level. I mean, can you always, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a, it's a, you kind of feel like you should have a moral sense. It's sport is part of life. You can't have a, you can't just pretend that none of this is happening. You know, that the, that the politics surrounding the game don't exist or that they're totally irrelevant. But at the same, but you know, the game in itself, you also have to watch. It deserves also to be taken on its own merits without always having the blinkers of, well, no, you know, I, I don't want Argentina to win this game because of the generals, you know, or, or, you know, I don't want Manchester City to win this game because of the, uh, you know, owners, or, you know, I don't like Manchester United because uh, the gla- what the Glazers are doing in making um, this kind of predatory rentier capitalism. Uh, see, making it seem acceptable, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a way, those. I mean, it, there is also a game taking place. It's funny though, uh, with regards to the Argentina example in '78, at the time maybe it wasn't seen in that way. But looking back at it now, Ozzy Ardiles and some of those other players, possibly all of them, I don't know, feel that they've never they're not viewed quite as. Um, Positively, as a team in '86 are, mm. as uh, this is as far as I probably shouldn't mention Aziz specifically, but there does seem to be a feeling in Argentina that, and not not through the players, uh, through any fault of the players, they just went and they won the tournament. But because of everything that surrounded it, now when it's when both those teams are viewed, the '86 team, is, it's just the easier one. Yeah. It's less complicated. You have your Maradona. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. is an easier one for yeah. us to be proud of. Whereas the other one, there was we all feel real it. sick about that one. Right. But you know, um, but you know, again, it's. Uh, it's 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 a very difficult one because either extreme position is sort of unsatisfactory, but the one in between where you're kind of aware of both things at the same time is is also a difficult one to get your head around. Did so. Jonathan just coin the phrase cuddly oligarch, by the way? Yeah. 
You don't That's hear it a, too often. No, right? cuddly oligarch is a, a new phrase for today. Yeah, a, a nice man. Well, I mean, look, all I know about Roman Abramovich is what I read in the autobiography of Frank Lampard. Uh, 900 pages about what an amazing man, warm, generous, creative, charming, sexy. Uh, <laughs> did, he, did he use that term? I don't know if he used the word sexy, but I'm pretty sure he used all the other terms. I mean, check out... Check out Lampard's autobiography. It's from 2006. He was a younger man then. I don't know. Was it really necessary to write 900 or something? It seemed like 900 pages when I was reading it about how amazing Ramovich was, how he got the yacht, you know, the whole Lampard family. You're not confusing with Middlemarch again, are you? No, no, no. This is Lampard uh, uh, totally frank. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Lampard cruising around in the Mediterranean, hanging out with Bono, Eddie Jordan, uh, this whole this whole set. On Abramovich's uh, yacht for a couple of weeks because he was the Chelsea player of the year. What an amazing man Roman Abramovich is. We've talked quite a lot about the crisis at Newcastle in the last week or so on the programme and it's something that Michael Walker is doing a big piece on in the Irish Times on Saturday. So have a read of all of that. Have a listen to our All Ireland preview and check out our website as well, secondcaptains.com. In the meantime, I'll just wish you goodbye and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you again. Thank you too, Owen. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.